feather or a fig. You may grow up to be a pig. And all the monkeys ain't in the zoo. Every day you'll see quite a few. So you see, it's all up to you. You could be better than you are. You could be swinging on a star. Hey. You could be swinging on a star. Hey. You could be swinging on a star. Hey. Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives to smoke it. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast guy. I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool at MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, 
Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. 
when Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio. That is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. Compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than As regular light bulbs. Member, and that each one saves TV about episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about someone who anyone who has ever heard anything about the civil rights movement in the United States has probably heard one thing about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is kind of one of those quick encapsulation people can spit out the name and sort of what it's associated with. Yes, Rosa Parks. Now you go. Montgomery bus boycott. Right. She refused to give up her seat one day uh, on the bus and that spawned the Montgomery bus boycott, which in turn spawned the creation of the Montgomery Montgomery Improvement Association, of which Martin Luther King Jr. was elected as its first president. So this is sort of a keystone moment in the American civil rights movement. Consequently, Rosa is known as the mother of the civil rights movement. Um, but as with many of the most memorable historical stories, this sort of elementary school version that a lot of people know about how one day... Uh, Rosa didn't give up her seat on a segregated bus, and then the boycott happened. Like it's, it's that's a really simplified version. It's of it. extremely oversimplified, and it uh, it misses a lot of the work that she did in her life. Um, yeah, she was way more than that one incident. She was basically amazing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And extremely, I mean, that one act of civil disobedience was a, a monumental act that was deeply important, but it was a tiny, tiny piece. Of this whole big story. So this that's why this episode blossomed into two parts. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, Rosa Parks' uh, early life. Uh, we're going to go up to the actual day on the bus. And then in part two, we will talk about the boycott and how that unfolded and what happened afterward and what her life was like after the boycott was over. And we're going to start with a little bit of background that we have learned is necessary um, in other times that we've talked about the civil rights movement in America, basically when we've done episodes that have touched on the civil rights movement, we've gotten um, quite a few message- messages from listeners outside the United States who felt like they didn't have enough context to really understand what we were talking about um, and like didn't really have a sense of what segregation was all about and all of that kind of stuff. And in the United States, as we just referenced, schools have a pretty sanitized and oversimplified view of the movement and of the social conditions at the time. 
So in light of all that, we're going to have a very, very brief recap yeah. of this. So slavery was abolished in the United States in the early 1860s. However, a number of laws and social systems continued to really deliberately subjugate African-Americans even though slavery was technically over. I'm using the air quotes all over the place here. Racism, discrimination, and unequal treatment are still things that you will find today. They still exist. And some of the other things we're about to talk about also continue to happen. Uh, But the first 100 years that followed the end of the Civil War, a lot of this really unfair treatment was completely legal. It was, in fact, encouraged in many cases, and it was pretty much a constant in terms of the social picture. Yes. So the laws included, among many others, things like polling and election laws that were explicitly meant to keep African Americans from voting. And there are also segregation laws known as Jim Crow laws, which separated white people from people of color and everything from schools to buses to restrooms. So the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of segregation in 1896, as long as these separate facilities were also equal. So, in reality, the facilities that were marked colored were generally inferior than the ones for white people. And as we talked about in our uh, episode on Loving versus Virginia last year, that was actually a two-parter, regardless of their quality, the fact that these separate facilities even existed was inherently a form of discrimination. And the social part of this equation really wove its way through every facet of life. So we have just a couple of examples. Uh, There were businesses that would hire only African-Americans for service positions, which sort of maintained this atmosphere and certainly a visual sense of slavery. Uh, Black people were held to vastly different behavioral standards than white people, especially when speaking to Caucasians, African-Americans were expected always to be subservient and meek and never talk back or stand up for themselves. And those who broke these social rules really risked some horrible consequences. They could be beaten. uh, They would certainly invite scorn and derision. And sometimes death. And sometimes it would get very, very violent and as Tracy said, end in their ending. Yes. Violence specifically by Caucasians against African-Americans was also just frequent and severe. And often authorities just chose not to investigate or prosecute what was going on. But on the other hand, African-Americans were frequently arrested, tried, and convicted for crimes they absolutely did not commit at all, and sometimes which had not even happened. And there were times when there was not even an arrest or conviction. Uh, They didn't bother with the paperwork or the legalities. There would simply be a mob that took the law into its own hands and lynched someone for a crime which may or may not have happened, may have been entirely made up. And you told me about how postcards of such things were sold in stores until the 60s. Yeah, I I had a boss at one of my previous jobs in a library who had happened upon them at one point. I think in a book collection that we had acquired and they're, they're literally postcards of lynchings. They were horrifying and he kind of kept them in his desk. And when st- students, it was in a university library would be talking about it. And anytime they were like, it really wasn't that bad. Was it? He was always ready to pull those out and go, Oh, it's really that bad. Yes. Uh, horrifying. Yes. So this was the most obvious and notorious in the American South especially in the states that had still allowed slavery at the start of the Civil War. 
But explicit racism and discrimination were really systemic, and they existed all over the country. It was not just, quote, a Southern problem. The Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacy organizations flourished throughout the country. So for total clarity, ending segregation was an important part of the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement was not just about who sat in what seat on the bus. And for Rosa Parks, it wasn't just about not giving up her seat that one day. It was also a much bigger picture. It was a lifelong part of her. And uh, that's we're going to start with the early part of her life now. Rosa Parks was born Rosa McCauley, and she grew up in Alabama. And in her autobiography, she describes herself as having a sense of fairness from a very young age. And she also had, in her own words, quote, a life history of being rebellious. And during her childhood, she had several encounters in which she was threatened by a white person and actually stood up for herself in spite of all of the social expectations that she would do exactly not that. Uh, In one, a white boy threatened to punch her and she picked up a brick and threatened to hit him back, which is startling. Well, especially considered that she's portrayed as sort of this diminutive, sweet lady. (laughs) Yes, she always is characterized as being just this very gentle, kind, wonderful person, but... Which is also true. (laughs) There was a spitfire in there that was not going to stand for unfair treatment. Uh, And in another instance, a white boy accused her and one of her friends of taking berries from the bushes outside his house. And she and her friend said, if you come over here, we'll give you a good beating, Uh, which is very brave. Yes. Uh, And there were many similar incidents throughout her childhood as well. So in all of these cases, when Rosa told an adult what had happened, she would be scolded for speaking that way to a white person. The adults in her life told her quite directly that she should never, ever defend herself or even raise her voice against a white person because of the very real risks that were involved. In the case of the Berries, her aunt told her that if the white boy told anybody else about it, they could be lynched. And Rosa simply did not agree with this. And as she grew up uh, and got married, neither did her husband, Raymond Parks, who she met in the spring of 1931. They were married in December of 1932, and everyone referred to him as just Parks. Uh, And so for that reason, as we go forward telling the story, we will call him Parks and Rosa will go by the name of Rosa. I have this whole conversation with myself every time we talk about a person, uh-huh. about how to name that person in the episode. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we have Parks as Parks and Rose as Rosa. So Parks was an activist. When he met Rosa, he was working extensively on behalf of a group of people known as the Scottsboro Boys. These were nine black teenagers who had been falsely accused of the gang rape of two white women. This was an incident which had not even happened, and they had been sentenced to death. So this work was extremely dangerous because of the threat of retaliation and violence from the white community. So all of the meetings took place completely in secret. And Parks wouldn't even tell Rosa the names of the other men who were working with him because of the danger that was involved for all of them. So for many, many years before Rosa became an activist, she had been observing Parks' own political work. Uh, and he had not wanted her to be involved because his own involvement was so incredibly dangerous. And this was not this was not like an exaggerated threat dangerous. No. Like activists' houses were bombed. Yeah. Frequently. So in nineteen forty three, Rosa joined the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or the NAACP. And this was an organization that started out 
um, to make sure that African Americans were getting the protections that were granted to them by the uh, the amendments to the Constitution that had followed the Civil War. So Parks had been a member when they had met, but eventually he'd become kind of disillusioned with the Montgomery chapter. At the time, it tended to exclude blue-collar members, and the most powerful African Americans in Montgomery were kind of reluctant to make waves because a lot of them had gotten to where they were by getting favors from the white community. So they sort of felt like trying to to go against that community would be biting the hand that fed them. Right. They didn't want to risk their own situation. Uh, But after seeing a picture of a former schoolmate at an NAACP meeting one day and realizing that they weren't for men only... Rosa decided to attend the meeting herself, and she wound up being the only woman at the meeting that night, and she was actually asked to take notes. Like, you're a lady, why don't you do secretary things? That That is a theme of her whole uh, adult life, actually. And this was also election day, so she actually was elected the group secretary. So she described herself as being too timid to say no that night. That if she'd been a little braver, she might have said that, you know, she declined the nomination. But this sort of sparked a change in in her. She wound up working extensively with the NAACP for many, many years. She dedicated herself to grassroots organization and progress for African Americans. She attended leadership conferences and annual meetings. She chaired committees. She gave addresses at conferences. And she worked with other social movement organizations and uh, other organizations that were they're working towards some specific civil rights end as well. Um, including the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, among others. And one of Rosa's duties as secretary of the NAACP was to document crimes and discrimination against African Americans. She traveled to record the testimonies of black people who had been the victims of crimes on the part of white people, including beatings and gang rapes. And she also talked to the families of people who had been lynched. I can't imagine how difficult that had to have been at times i know uh she also looked for new homes and work in montgomery when victims were facing retaliation in their own communities in the instances where they spoke up and she advocated for african americans who were wrongfully imprisoned as well as corresponding with them and offering aid and comfort when she could along with parks she worked extensively on getting african americans registered to vote so today in most places in the united states you can register to vote by sending in a postcard. Yeah. (laughs) Or sometimes they have people like outside of stores or in other public areas. This is not how it was. No, it took some effort. Yes. So around this time, there were several thousand African-Americans living in Montgomery, Alabama, but only about 30 were registered to vote. And this is because for African-Americans in this part of the United States, registration was a huge tangle of bureaucracy and discrimination. Uh, Applications required people to identify their employers and their backgrounds. There were tests and poll taxes that were more difficult and more expensive for black people. And African-Americans in Montgomery had to have a white person to vouch for them to be able to do it at all. And Rosa tried multiple times over the course of two years to register, and she was actually denied every time. And this continued until one attempt in which she wrote down all the questions on her registration exam so she could file suit against the registration board. When the registrar caught on to what she was doing, she was finally told that she had passed the test, and then she was allowed to register. So in that instance, making waves kind of helped. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um... 
Parks actually tried to register for many, many years, and he was told no over and over and over. Um, he did not. He was not registered to vote until they actually left Montgomery, way farther down the road in this story. Um, Rosa resigned her position as NAACP secretary in 1949 because her mother was ill. And although she scaled her work back with them at the time, she did continue to be active, and she returned to the post in 1952, uh, when the Supreme Court verdict of Brown versus Board of Education overturned school segregation in 1954. She also worked on the integration of schools. Uh, and before we get to this next piece of her life, do you want to pause for a moment and share a word from our sponsor? Let's do that. Alrighty. So, um, if you have not heard yet, uh oh. Postage rates are changing again. Yeah, it's never a fun time. You know what that means. I, I have some theories. <laughs> Post office is even more crowded than it normally is, especially if you pick the wrong time of day to go, oh, which yeah. is what I do anytime I need to go there. And you don't get that time back. Nope. That's why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you'll eliminate those time-consuming trips to the post office because you can do anything that you would do at the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer or printer. And Stamps.com always updates the exact postage rates for you automatically, so you always get the exact postage that you need the instant that you need it. You don't need to go little buy. You don't need to go buy little one cent and two cent stamps to make it do. It will do it for you. You will never have to go to the post office again. Right now, you can use our promo code, which is STUFF, for this special offer, and that is a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That is Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. Alrighty, are you ready to talk about buses? Yes. So... Rosa's famous refusal to give up her bus seat took place in 1955, but this was not the first time she had been removed from a Montgomery bus for breaking segregation rules. The first one was actually on her second attempt to register to vote. Black people were supposed to board the bus at the front, pay their fare, and exit the bus, and then walk to the back door of the bus to get on so that they would not walk through the white people section at the front. It was just incredibly degrading sort of ridiculous. Yes. So on that day, the back of the bus was just packed with people. Voter registration hours were just very limited and they were extremely sporadic. And this was a deliberate attempt to discourage black people from registering. So as soon as a voter registration day would be announced, word would spread through the community and the buses would fill up with people who were going to try to register. So rather than try to push her way through this crowd of people trying to register to vote, Rosa paid her fare and she walked straight back. And the driver demanded that she get off and enter her section of the bus through the back door and she refused. And the driver actually grabbed her sleeve to pull her off of the bus. And I love the thing that she did next so much, which is that when she got to the front of the bus, she dropped her purse. And instead of bending it down to just pick it up, she sat on the front seat and then reached down and got it off the floor and then left the bus. It's kind of awesome. I love her. Yeah. Uh, Twelve years later, she was removed from another Montgomery bus in the act of civil disobedience that people know about because it in many ways catalyzed the civil rights movement. So by this point, the NAACP had been looking for a test case for getting bus segregation overturned for several years. 
bus segregation was particularly demoralizing and degrading. Even though lots and lots of places were segregated, the buses in particular, they were extra upsetting. Uh, more African-Americans than Caucasians rode the bus, so the black community made up the majority of the customers. And everyone was paying the same fare, but African-Americans were treated very badly, and they were often forced to give up their seats for white passengers. Over the years, many people had been arrested for violating segregation laws on Montgomery's buses, but for various reasons, none of them had worked out to be a good plaintiff in a test case. One in particular named Claudette Colvin had been considered until it was discovered that she was pregnant, which was problematic because she was an unmarried teenager. So Rosa knew all this. She was working with the NAACP at the time, but she wasn't trying to get herself arrested when she got on the bus that day. In fact, it was being driven by the same man who had taken her off the bus 12 years earlier. And she had at that point decided to never ever get on one of his buses again. Uh, she didn't notice that he was the one behind the wheel when she was on her way home from work on December 1st, 1955. And once she made that connection, she had already paid her fare, so she stayed on board. At the next stop, white passengers boarded the bus and they filled the last of the seats in the white-only section up front. And the driver called back for people sitting in Rosa's row to give up their seats. Uh, if one white person was in a row, then there could be no black people in it, even if there were empty seats. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't enough for just the seat to be empty. It had to be the whole row. So at first, nobody moved. But then the three other people who were sitting in Rosa's row stood up and went to stand at the back. Rosa stayed where she was, and she kind of moved her legs to let the man who was in the window seat get past her. She wrote in her autobiography... People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And when the driver saw that Rosa was still sitting there, he said he was going to have her arrested. And she answered, you may do that. <laughs> I love her. I really do. Uh, she was taken into custody by two policemen and driven to City Hall where she was jailed. And she was eventually allowed to make a phone call and she called home to ask Parks to come bail her out. She really thought that it was going to take a long time because Parks did not have a car. He was going to have to, you know, either take a bus or, or ride along or walk a long way to get there. But word had already spread that she had been arrested and a friend who'd heard about it went to the Parks home to give him a ride. E.D. Nixon was someone that Rosa and Parks had worked with for many years at the NAACP, and he got in touch with a lawyer named Clifford Durr and helped get Rosa out of jail, and the trial was set for the following Monday. At this point, E.D. Nixon, who he did a lot in Montgomery with the Civil Rights Movement, he asked Rosa whether she would be willing to be the plaintiff in a test case to try to overturn bus segregation. He really thought she would be an ideal candidate. He had known her for years. He considered her reputation and her demeanor to be impeccable. She was a devout Christian and a member of an African Methodist Episcopal Church. She was also married and she had a job and there were no skeletons in her closet that were gonna come out during a trial and, and throw everything off the rails. And so after talking it over with Parks and with her mother, Rosa agreed. And that is where we're going to pause the end of part one. Uh. 
I think I will read some listener mail before we sign off for this episode. That sounds like a capital idea. This one is from our listener, Amelia, and it is actually in reference to our Mendez versus Westminster episode, which was about the segregation of Mexican-American children in Southern California schools. Uh, so it's it fits a little with what we're talking about today. So Amelia says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I just listened to the Mendez versus Westminster podcast and was reminded of one of my favorite undergraduate history classes, African-American history, 1865 to present, which covered many, many topics related to segregation, desegregation, and legalized discrimination. It was the first class I took that required me to memorize Supreme Court cases. I was an art major before embracing history and getting a master's in it. At any rate, this podcast reminded me of one of the cases we had to memorize, Lum v. Rice, 1927, which clearly influenced Mendez v. Westminster and not in a good way. A Chinese-American father sued to have his daughter attend the local white school in Mississippi by the logic that since they weren't black, she shouldn't have to attend the black school, which was poorly funded. Unfortunately for the Lum family, they lost, with the court saying that since Martha Lum was not white, she couldn't attend the white school. I've always been curious about the background of the case and the family. She has in parentheses, how does a Chinese-American family end up in Mississippi in the 1920s? And what became of them? Perhaps a suggestion for a future podcast. Keep up the good work. Uh, And then she says that she listens to our podcast while rehabbing our home, and we've distracted her from the crummy jobs like pulling carpet staples from the wood floors and fixing window stashes. Oh, I hate pulling carpet staples. And I said window stashes when I should have said sashes. (laughs) Um, thank you so much, Amelia. There were so many cases that were precursors to uh, Mendez versus Westminster yeah. that I kept having to like trim some of them out and, and selectively figure out which ones to talk about because there were lots. Yeah, I I know that myself, I lose that sense of how many of these types of incidents were going on leading up to desegregation, that there were lots of these little pockets of individuals that were trying to figure out the best way to, you know, raise their family and live their lives. And they kind of get lost in the bigger picture kind of quick version that you often get. Yeah. Well, and that's a good segue to where we're going to leave off for our next episode, because one of the uh, one of the things before the civil rights movement was that there were a lot of people who were working on civil rights issues most of them before the Montgomery bus boycott did not think they were going to see a whole lot of action on it in their lifetimes. Um, So we will talk more about that in our next episode. If you would like to write to us on this or anything else, we're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mistinhistory and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to learn more about this, you can come to our website and put the words Rosa Parks into our search bar and you will find our article on how the civil rights movement worked. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by lynda.com. You can learn it at lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by lynda.com. You can learn it at lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video Video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History class can try lynda.com free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash history stuff. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Today we're going to pick up where our previous episode left off. We're talking about Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. So previously we talked about sort of the historical context of what was going on in the United States prior to the civil rights movement, leading up until the day that Rosa Parks famously refused to leave her seat on a Montgomery bus. She was arrested and, um, She was going to be tried for breaking Montgomery's bus segregation laws on Monday, December 5th, 1955. That was just immediately following the weekend of when she had been arrested. So the Women's Political Council called for a boycott of the buses on that day as a protest. They pretty much started making and distributing handbills announcing the boycott right at the same time as Rosa was arrested. And the handbill read, Another Negro woman has been arrested and thrown into jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus and give it to a white person. This is the second time since the Claudette Colvin case that a Negro woman has been arrested for the same thing. This has to be stopped. Negroes have rights too, for if Negroes did not ride the buses, they could not operate. Three-fourths of the riders are Negroes, yet we are arrested or have to stand over empty seats. If we do not do something to stop these arrests, they will continue. The next time, it may be you or your daughter or mother. This woman's case will come up Monday. We are, therefore, asking every Negro to stay off the buses Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. Don't ride the buses to work, to town, to school, or anywhere on Monday. You can afford to stay out of school for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk. But please, children and grown-ups, don't ride the bus at all on Monday. Please stay off all buses Monday. So in addition to these handbills, which were distributed, there was a lot of word of mouth uh, talk about the boycott, and ministers spoke to their congregations, encouraging the boycott in church on Sunday. And so on Monday, support for the boycott was huge. About 90% of black bus riders boycotted. That is a massively significant number when you consider that they were three quarters of the riders. Uh, People walked, they carpooled, they took cabs. Cab companies owned by African-Americans actually charged passengers the same fare they would have paid for the bus. It was like 10 cents. Yeah. Uh, There are stories of people walking literally 20 miles that day rather than ride the bus. So at the trial, Rose's lawyers entered a not guilty plea, but they didn't really put forth an enormous defense against the charges. The whole point was that a guilty verdict could be appealed. 
So Rosa was found guilty, and she was fined $10 plus $4 in court costs. That same day, a coalition of ministers and community leaders formed the Montgomery Improvement Association and elected Martin Luther King Jr. its president. Its mission was to advance the general status of Montgomery, to improve race relations, and to uplift the general tenor of the community. So that night, the Montgomery Improvement Association, also called the MIA, held a community meeting in order to decide whether to continue the boycott. Uh, Obviously, it had been a big show of support, uh, but the question was, if we keep doing this, can we get actual change to happen? Dr. King spoke, and afterward, Rosa was introduced to the crowd. She didn't actually speak. They were, uh, she was like, should I say something? And the verdict was like, you have said a lot (laughs) by your actions, so it's fine. Um, In the end, the MIA made three demands to present to the city's leadership. One, courteous treatment on the buses. The second was first-come, first-served seating with whites in the front and blacks in the back. And three, hiring of black drivers for the black bus routes. This sounds like an exceptionally reasonable set of demands, but the city refused. Uh, And from this point, the MIA started organizing ways to keep the bus boycott going. Most African Americans did not own cars, so a long-term boycott was really going to require some support. Uh, They also started working with attorneys to present demands to try to negotiate with city leaders and the bus company. So, as the boycott stretched on, Rosa wound up losing her job. Her employer, which was the Montgomery Fair Department store said that it no longer needed her work as a seamstress because it no longer had a tailor. So the tailor would fit garments to people and then she would sew based on what the tailor had done. So without a job, she focused extensively on the boycott. She became the dispatcher for a network of privately owned cars that carried about 30,000 black people to and from work every day. She also continued to work and support the boycott throughout its entire 13-month duration. She spoke, she worked, and she organized. Her involvement did not end with not giving up her seat. Yeah. Uh, Life, as you can imagine, became harder for people who chose not to ride the bus as the boycott went on. People lost their jobs because they supported this uh, effort. And police harassed black people that were waiting for cabs. Cab drivers were also fined for carrying black passengers if they charged a reduced fare. Yeah, there was a pretty concerted effort to attempt to break the the boycott. There was also some targeting of white women who were driving their maids to and from work. A lot of like, we need to figure out how to get the white ladies to stop doing this because they're really hurting our cause. It's all kind of... Yeah, it was orchestrated. Eventually, a white attorney dug up an old law that prohibited boycotts. And a grand jury indicted many private citizens and community leaders who had been boycotting, including Dr. King, the leaders of the MIA, more than 20 ministers, and Rosa Parks. And as a side note, the famous picture of Rosa Parks being fingerprinted is in fact not from her initial arrest after being removed from the bus. It's from her arrest after this indictment. Right. That's, you see it a lot of times with like completely not the right caption. Uh, Things really started to become violent also. The homes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Edie Nixon were bombed. Rosa also got threatening phone calls at her home. It became an increasingly dangerous situation for the people who were boycotting and supporting the boycott. 
And from the city's point of view, this boycott was having a very clear economic impact. The buses simply couldn't afford to run without the fares from black riders. And downtown businesses were really suffering from the absence of customers who had previously gotten there to shop via bus. But the city would not budge on the segregation policies, even though it was harming them. So the case that gradually made its way to the United States Supreme Court was called Browder versus Gale. Browder was Aurelia S. Browder, who was one of the women who had been mistreated on a Montgomery bus. Gale was Mayor William A. Gale. And then also part of the case were other plaintiffs and defendants, as, as, as is often true. There were other women who had been arrested for breaking segregation laws on the plaintiff's side. And on the defendant's side were also the chief of police, the bus company, drivers, and other people. Rosa herself was not actually one of the plaintiffs of the Supreme Court because at this point she was also being prosecuted on these other charges and the attorneys did not want that to influence the proceedings. A U.S. District Court panel found in favor of the plaintiffs on June 5, 1956. The city commissioners appealed and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the district court's decision on November 13, 1956. City and state officials asked the Supreme Court to reconsider and the Supreme Court rejected this plea on December 17th of 1956. On December 20th, a written order from the Supreme Court arrived in Montgomery requiring the buses to integrate. So that, the boycott ended then. It had taken more than 13 months. So more than a year of people not riding the bus. Many of the boycott's leaders rode together on the first integrated bus. Rosa herself didn't because her mother wasn't feeling well and she wanted to stay home with her. But some reporters figured out where she lived, showed up and wanted a photo op, and drove her into town to get on and off buses so they could take pictures. So that is the source of the equally famous pictures of Rosa Parks riding on an integrated bus for the first time, staged on behalf of journalists. journalists. As was the case with school integration following Brown versus Board of Education, there was heavy resistance to integrating the buses. There were shots fired at integrated buses, and there were church bombings that followed in its wake. So there was still an atmosphere of very real danger. Yes, and Rosa herself said that it, even though the buses had been integrated and they, they got what they were after, it didn't really feel like a victory because she knew just how much work there was still left to do. And before we talk about some more of that work that went on, let's take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor. That sounds grand. So, Holly, you and I are in the studio today uh, with, with many, many people staying home because of the threat of winter weather. Yes. It can just totally impact the way we do business with roads that are closed and flights that are canceled. Many, many flights have already been canceled out of Hartsfield-Jackson, which is Atlanta's air, airport. Yeah. People staying home quote, sick. I'm usually fine with that. We get to stay home <laughs> teleworky. Yes. Which is very handy. So uh, that one great way to be prepared for that kind of, you know, unforeseen weather circumstance is to sign up for GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. It's the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online no matter what the weather is like. You can sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and then launch your first meeting in seconds. No matter where you are, you will be instantly connected to the rest of your team. You can share your screen to collaborate on projects in real time. You can turn your webcams on and see each other face to face. And so even if some kind of enormous blizzard 
or phantom blizzard that may or may not happen <laughs> is keeping you away from the office, you can still meet in person and be productive. Um, it's an awesome way to stay connected. It is. It's so handy and quick. Yes. Even if it's snowing in your office, not in your office, but Maybe. even if it's snowing outside your office and the you people... Live in a- weather anomaly yes and and the people you're talking to are in sunny california which is a distinct possibility it's cruel in our office i thought about uh i was in california recently and it was cold here and i thought about setting up a quick go-to meeting just to gloat but that seemed mean oh that does seem really cruel holly <laughs> so yes it, it can be much more productive than just gloating about the fact that you're at disneyland so start your free 30-day trial of go-to meeting today Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code STUFF. That's GoToMeeting.com and the promo code STUFF. Uh, And now we'll get back to the events that unfolded following the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah, so the the boycott became one of the keystones in the American Civil Rights Movement. It's certainly uh, something we hear about all the time. Like we said in the beginning of the first episode of this topic... It's kind of like uh, the quick soundbite that you get, Rosa Parks Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, It was widely covered in the national media, and it brought more attention to the struggle for equal rights. It was also a clear indication that it really was possible to change things. Uh, As we referenced at the end of our previous episode, before the bus boycott, a lot of civil rights activists genuinely felt like their work was not going to produce any kind of real change in their lifetimes. Even though people were working really hard, trying to organize at a a grassroots level, trying to take legal steps to to address laws that were unjust, it really seemed like an uphill battle that was going to take a really, really long time to see any real change on. The success of the bus boycott inspired communities to organize and to protest and also sort of gave a template for for how much work it would take and how much organization and how many people uh, to have a unified action on something. And this is also when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. started to really emerge as a civil rights leader, encouraging nonviolent protests and civil disobedience as a way to encourage social change. So this movement continued on for for many years. We, We could have like a whole series of podcasts that was about the civil rights movement. Uh, there's an awesome book and TV series called Eyes on the Prize, which documents it uh, just astoundingly. Um, so many important and historic moments that that went on and, and culminated in a lot of federal legislation that made a lot of what was going on illegal. So while a lot of these things do still happen today, a lot of these things being things that are, that are obviously discriminatory or racist, um, they are not legal and encouraged the way that they were before the civil rights movement happened. Right. Rosa's own autobiography, which is sort of meant for younger readers, it's called Rosa Parks, My Story, doesn't really say much about her life after the boycott. After it ended, though, she and Parks couldn't find work because of their involvement with the boycott and the movement. They were also accused of being communists because of their civil rights work and their associations with some civil rights organizations that did have some communist leanings. And they were harassed a lot. Uh, Parks became increasingly worried about Rose's safety. So eight months after this whole event ended, they moved to Detroit, where Rose's brother had also moved after World War II. 
And even there, they had some serious economic troubles because people did not want to hire Rosa. She continued to go to meetings and work with civil rights organizations, but those organizations would not offer her paying work. Yeah, they were actually like national news stories. Yeah, she was a little too high profile for people to take a risk on her. Yeah, and, and, and there were... You know, there were news stories that covered this story that was like, this civil rights heroine cannot find a job. Yeah. Um, For a while, she moved to Hampton, Virginia, where she had found a job running this sort of combination dorm slash guest facility on the campus of Hampton Institute, which was a black college. But she felt really lonely and isolated there. She tried really hard to find work for Parks so that he could come and be with her and wasn't able to. She eventually moved back to Detroit, and it took about five years for her to find steady, paying work. And in Detroit, she and Parks continued to be harassed because of their activism. And even though interviewers continued to ask her about the progress of civil rights in the South, she became acutely aware of how many of the same problems still existed in the North. Yeah, well, the South is often pointed to as, like, the hotbed of all of it, but it really was all over the country. Yeah, a lot of, like, registering to vote uh, was just a crazily convoluted, deliberately demeaning process for African Americans in the South. Uh, and and in the in the North, there were also many steps that were taken to deliberately disenfranchise African American people. It just was not as obvious. Um, some of the social things that we talked about earlier in the in the introduction to the previous episode, when we talked about sort of the social context, and we talked about uh, businesses that would hire only African Americans for service positions. A lot of that was like fancy hotels in the North who were hoping to attract Southern business people, and they would maintain this veneer of like a romanticized slavery version by having an all-black waitstaff. It, it was not just a Southern thing. No. Uh, in 1964, a black candidate named John Conyers Jr. ran for a seat in the House of Representatives, and Rosa had been following his campaign. He had been, before he got into politics, a civil rights lawyer. Rosa endorsed his candidacy, and he was eventually elected. And in 1965, he hired her for a position in his Detroit office, and she continued to work for him until she retired. This was a secretarial role, uh, because she was a woman, and this was the 60s. That was basically the job. Limited options. Yeah, like the job that a a middle-class woman could do was basically secretary. But it definitely gave her the chance to continue with her activism throughout Detroit and really the the rest of the country. She continued to travel and speak and work for equality for the rest of her life. There are photographs of her at anti-apartheid rallies as she got into her later years. This was really a lifelong activism uh, for equal rights for all people. Yeah, it was really her purpose. I mean, her personal mission. Yes. Uh, And Rosa Parks died at home on October 24th of 2005. Representative Conyers introduced a resolution for her to lie in honor at the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. She was the first woman and the second African American to be given this honor. And I love her. Mm -hmm. I think she's amazing. She is... It's it's like uh, the moment on the bus was an amazing moment. But to reduce her to this moment, like, really... It ignores a lot of other amazing it stuff. It ignores so much amazing stuff. Yep. Um, there is a great book that I, I read uh, as I was researching this podcast. It's by uh, Jean Theo Harris, and it's called The Rebellious Life of Miss Rosa Parks. And it's this, like, 
It's this whole annotated volume that's about all this other work that she did for so long. Um, and that, you know, even breaking this into two parts, there are lots of things that we did not talk about that she did and that she accomplished uh, and that she represented on behalf of the civil rights movement and women, which in a lot of ways tended to be a male-dominated movement. So while we fangirl out on Rosa Parks, do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. And this is from Jessica. And Jessica, this is actually, I have like the file of stuff that I mean to read and then sometimes I miss something and it, it's much oh, yeah. later. So this is from like the Wayback Machine of my inbox. This is from Jessica who wrote to us at the beginning of December. Um, she says, first of all, I absolutely love the podcast. I listen on my daily commute from Boston where I live to Fall River where I work. Yes, the same Fall River where Lizzie Borden was acquitted of axing her parents to death. She has a little asterisk here and then down at the bottom it says, the general consensus among the people of Fall River is that she definitely did it. Which cracks me up. <laughs> uh, I work in Fall River as a public defender, representing low-income individuals who have been charged with crimes. The house where Ms. Borden's alleged murders took place is actually right behind our new courthouse. Spooky. It is a bed and breakfast now. You can sleep in the very room where Abby Borden was hacked to death, if that's something you're into. I don't know where I fall on that issue. Nor me. <laughs> <laughs> I recently listened to the Boston Massacre podcast, which was awesome. I'm really glad you took the time to talk about John Adams. His defense of the soldiers is something that I and other public defenders use to explain to others why we do what we do. Everyone deserves to have their rights protected, whether it's British soldiers or everyday people who can't afford representation. So the next time I'm in court, I'll be thinking about John Adams and trying to forget the fact that the spooky Lizzie Borden house is right next to me. Thanks for the great podcasts, Jessica. <laughs> I kind of love that there's a spooky Lizzie Borden house right next to the courthouse. Me too. Or behind I, it, I guess. I, so I always forget that so much stuff in New England is an easy commuting distance from so much other stuff in New England. <laughs> the fact that somebody commutes from Boston to Fall River it kind of delights me. Uh, and the fact that uh, people are using the, the story of John Adams and the Boston Massacre to explain the role of public defender to be yeah i think that is awesome if you would like to write to us we are at history podcast at discovery.com we're also on facebook at facebook.com slash missed in history and on twitter at missed in history our tumblr is missed in history.tumblr.com and our pinterest is pinterest.com slash missed in history if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today you can come to our website and put the word civil rights into the search bar. You will find a timeline of civil rights. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com history to get a free audiobook download. Shit.
Straight up technical issues, my bad.
Assassin Brass. Like I said, I'm your host, Andrea. Beautiful things happening today. I've been on hiatus for a minute because I just needed to spend some time in the woods. What the hell? Went to King's Canyon lately. Deepest craters on Earth. Some crazy shit. Um, but yeah, you're listening to some Blondie and to the soundtrack of La Mission, a locally shot flick. Anyway... Um, if you have any requests, hit me up, 415-550-0511. Um, yeah, I'm going to throw in some handsome boy modeling school. Tune in.
death sentences in this live litigator. To close the case tighter than the jaws of a gator. Stenographers are steady logging the jargon. That your counselors are barking in hopes of a plea bargain. But when you read back verbatim what they're saying to persuade them, you realize exactly how I play them. I come with the truth, whole truth, and nothing but. Cause the truth hurts just as much as fucking with live will. I prove skill with refills from now until plagiarizing MCs get their flows distilled.
Don't mess with a hungry man. Anyway, okay, so we're doing an excellent raffle here still. You can win a Fender guitar with like an amp case um, and just all of its beauty. It's like a majestic maroon. Um, and tickets are only $5 here for raffling. Um, and we haven't drawn yet, but it's an amazing value that you're not gonna find anywhere else except at this station. So if you are interested, come on down, let us know. We have tickets here available, ready to go. Um, come kick it at the station no matter what, but we will not draw it until you come down and do your part. Um, anyways, moving forward, that was the, the Fender was, was a result of a beautiful silent auction we had during the 3,030 days, which we actually obtained, which was fantastic for Mutiny Radio. But yeah, like I said, I can't stress enough, come on down. It's a fantastic deal. Um, but you were just listening to Quantic and Alice Russell, my absolute favorite band on the face of this planet. And I've yet to see them yet live because they're in the fucking UK, but that's that's not the point. Um, yeah, we're going to mix it up. Put on a little bit of the Fleet Foxes. You're listening to Sass and Brass.
street.
this song's a special request. Life without music, silence the whole day long. Here's the tone, your rhythm, words without a song. Just don't know what to do. How could I live out my day? Would I be getting up, pushing my life away? When the drums come calling, the bass line pulls you in. Sounds of regal splendor.